Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine, where we try to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible, and so we're trying to spoon-feed you all of the latest research. So let's see what we're going to be covering this week. First off, we have the racial bias in pulse oximetry. After that, opioids and cardiac arrest, what the American Heart Association has to say. Then what EMS might be able to use to predict C-spine injuries in children. Following that, we have ruling out esophageal injury after trauma with just a CT. Can it be done? And then finally, we end off with podcasts on the drive home. Are you still learning? This, of course, is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by the golden-hearted Carmen Wolf, Cliff Freeman, Aaron Lacey, and Clay Smith. So without further ado, I bring you the first article, which was titled Racial Bias in Pulse Oximetry Measurement out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Pulse oximetry is huge. It's pretty much one of our vital signs now. But it's not as accurate as everybody sort of likes to give it credit for. We're relying on a lot of, you know, complex algorithms and pieces of technology to get this number. And so as a result of that, not everything is perfect. It's not as straightforward as a lot of our other vital signs, you know, like counting the number of heartbeats you hear in a minute or measuring the pressure of someone's blood vessels in someone's arm. So there are downsides. For instance, if you have any numbers that fall below 75 to 80% saturation, these numbers are essentially meaningless. Um, the curves that calculate these numbers just aren't calibrated to go that low. And so once you get to these numbers, they really don't mean a lot in terms of the actual saturation of the blood. But luckily, all of that can be summed up as it's pretty much bad news bears. You want to get that saturation higher than whatever it is. Another problem that's gotten a lot of publicity lately is that there can be changes in the pulse oximetry readings and discrepancies that are caused by the colors of people's skin. And so this study is looking into that, the racial bias of pulse oximetry. So to assess how pulse oximetry's clinical significance can be affected by racial bias, these authors looked at the rates of occult hypoxemia. And so this was defined as an arterial saturation level of less than 88% on an arterial blood gas sample. Despite pulse oximetry readings of 92 to 96%. These authors drew on two cohorts, one from the University of Michigan and the other a pooled group of ICU patients. They compared pairs of measurements taken no more than 10 minutes apart looking for occult hypoxemia. And what they found was 11% of black patients and only 4% of white patients had occult hypoxemia in the Michigan cohort. And then when they looked at the ICU cohort, 17% of black patients had occult hypoxemia, whereas only 6% of white patients did. These results aren't exactly novel, but they do bring to light a big problem. We already make many clinical decisions based on pulse oximetry. There's a reliance on this modality. Racial bias to this degree isn't acceptable. And even a 5% rate of occult hypoxemia in the group that it's supposedly calibrated for, I guess, that still isn't very good. Hopefully in the future we can make machines that compensate for this. We're already using lights to measure the amount of oxygen in your blood. It seems like it wouldn't be too hard to also use a light to measure your skin tone and then possibly compensate for that. I'm not sure. In a spoonful, comparing arterial blood gas readings to pulse oximetry uncovers occult hypoxemia twice as much in black patients as in white. And next, the second article, which was titled Opioid-Associated Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest. 
Distinctive Clinical Features and Implications for Healthcare and Public Responses, a scientific statement from the American Heart Association out of the Journal of Circulation. While it's easy to get swept up in the COVID pandemic that we're all very much still a part of, we have to remember that we're still in the middle of the opioid epidemic as well. And so here we have a pretty comprehensive statement from the American Heart Association about out-of-hospital cardiac arrest as that relates to opioid use. Of course, we can't cover every point from this article, but our author Cliff managed to pull out what uh, he thought were the salient points, and here they are. Since there's such a wide variety of opioids out there, each with their own receptor profiles, touching on different symptoms as well, then there's also a wide variety of side effects. So your classical picture might not always fit super well. But if the clinical picture as a whole fits, then prepare to be getting those high doses of naloxone ready. Also, recall that methadone prolongs the QT interval, so watch out for dysrhythmias. These are not going to be your standard cardiac arrest patients. Pay especially close attention to breathing and ventilation because this is most likely going to be the cause of your arrest, that being hypoxemia in opioid use patients. On that same note, be really careful in labeling these patients as pulseless. They're often profoundly hypotensive and have severe respiratory depression, which can look a lot like pulselessness. If they are truly pulseless, then resuscitative efforts without naloxone is actually recommended, but otherwise naloxone is really going to be what's going to save them. After an overdose, the data seems to show that it's relatively safe for them to refuse transport. But know that naloxone's half-life is just a little over an hour, and even if it's generally safe to refuse transport in the short term, there's good data showing that there's a higher mortality in the longer term, at least out to one year. Any neuroprognostication of these rest patients is going to have to wait until 72 hours after ROSC and for normothermia, as well as confirmation that they've cleared all of their intoxicants. So in a spoonful, just really be mindful of these opioid arrest patients. Next, the third article, which is titled Pre-Hospital Factors Associated with Cervical Spine Injuries in Pediatric Blunt Trauma Patients, out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. PCARN is wonderful. It's full of many wonderful people who give us many decision rules for kids. They've already done a retrospective study in the emergency department and found eight predictive factors for C-spine injuries in children after blunt trauma. These still haven't been prospectively validated, but the thought is still great. Thinking a little bit past that, though, is to consider that the EMS colleagues that we have are going to be the first people that respond to a lot of these calls, and they're the ones who decide if they want to put on a rigid collar or not. Just having a collar can have complications with airway management, it raises intracranial pressure, it can increase patient discomfort, and increases the amount of imaging that happens in the emergency department. So how about if we had a set of rules for more the EMS context? so that they could clear the C-spine early and avoid the collar altogether. This study was a planned secondary analysis intended as a pilot study of a prospective multi-center study of EMS personnel transporting children after blunt traumas. They found that the following variables were associated with C-spine injuries. An axial load, altered mental status, signs of basilar skull fracture, substantial torso injury, substantial thoracic injury, respiratory distress, and decreased oxygen saturation. They also asked all of the EMS personnel the PCARN criteria that we just mentioned, and those ended up having a negative predictive value of 99.8% and a positive predictive value of just 2.8%. 
So none of these variables should be used in practice just yet, since this study was just a pilot study to identify them, and will need prospective validation in the future. It does help us to know what factors might matter, though. It seems that the history and mechanism of action probably aren't going to be very important, except maybe in axial load injuries. For now, patients with severe injuries are likely all going to need a C-collar. And then maybe once these variables have been prospectively validated, then they'll be ready for the prime time. In a spoonful, EMS assessments of children found that these variables were associated with C-spine injuries. They are axial load, altered mental status, signs of basilar skull fracture, substantial torso or thoracic injury, respiratory distress, and decreased oxygen saturation. And that brings us to the fourth article, Computed Tomography Angiography for Aerodigestive Injuries in Penetrating Neck Trauma, a systematic review out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. With penetrating neck trauma, it's very important to rule out esophageal involvement. Missing it can result in significant morbidity in up to half of patients and even mortality in as much as a third. The easiest way to rule out esophageal injury would of course be the donut of truth which has gradually gotten better and better resolution over the years, and is already the gold standard for evaluating vascular injuries of the neck, so maybe a CTA alone would be enough to rule out any aerodigestive injuries. This study was a systematic review and meta-analysis of seven diagnostic studies done on 877 patients with penetrating neck traumas who got CTAs. What the authors wanted to know was whether or not the CTAs alone would be able to detect any aerodigestive injuries. The prevalence of these injuries in the cohort was 13%. And when you were looking at the likelihood ratios for a CTA, you found a positive likelihood ratio of 12.2 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.14. I mean, that's, that's pretty good. But if you dig into it, then you see that of the 26 esophageal injuries that were detected during surgery or with a swallow test, five of them were missed by a CTA. And then that doesn't seem so hot. On top of it, the studies included were at risk for both incorporation and ascertainment bias, which could falsely increase the diagnostic accuracy. In a spoonful, CTA alone was not enough to rule out esophageal injury after penetrating neck trauma. And now the last article, Article 5, Maximizing the Morning Commute, a randomized trial assessing the effect of driving on podcast knowledge acquisition and retention out of the annals of emergency medicine. Ah, yay, podcasts. Anything about podcasts is near and dear to my heart. I can guarantee you that um, I did not get this gig by accident. So emergency medicine residency, of course, involves very long hours and high expectations. And when you're a learner, your time really isn't your own. Own. Any free time that you have, you could be filling most of it with study time. One way to supplement your studying is, of course, with podcasts. But you're not probably going to just lie in bed and listen to them. So if you're doing something else while you listen to a podcast, is it still working? A full 90% of emergency medicine residents report listening to podcasts on a regular basis. And nearly three quarters of them listen to podcasts while driving. I know that I do. Heck, I can't remember the last time that I drove anywhere alone in a car without listening to a podcast. These authors wanted to compare knowledge retention when residents were listening to a podcast just in a quiet room versus when they were distracted, i.e. while driving, and see if they were able to remember the things from the podcast, either better or worse. They recruited 100 residents in a multi-center randomized crossover trial. 
They were then randomized to either 30 minutes of listening to podcasts while driving or while just sitting. Then, within 30 minutes of listening, they answered 20 multiple-choice questions based on the material. They then crossed over to the other group and repeated the process with new podcast material. A month later, they were also asked to answer another 40 questions to test their knowledge again, looking at the retention of this knowledge as well, not just immediate recall. And I'm very relieved to hear these results, since I just never sit there and listen to podcasts. I really, really don't. Anyways, they found no significant difference in the initial or delayed recall if these listeners were distracted, i.e. driving, or not just sitting there. And importantly, there were also no car accidents in these studies, so hopefully it's also safe. In a spoonful, emergency medicine residents learned just as well from podcasts whether or not they were sitting and just listening, or if they were distracted a little bit by driving. All the more reason to share the Journal Feed podcast with your colleagues and, you know, maybe leave a review so that more people can find us. We're helping you guys. I'm telling you, this proves it. All right, let's wrap up. What did we learn today? First off, we saw that there's a clear racial bias in pulse oximetry readings, resulting in twice as much occult hypoxemia in black patients compared to white patients. Next, if you want to hear more on opioid-associated out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, then the American Heart Association actually has a great statement on this, and we covered a few of the salient points. Third, while it's not being done yet, these authors looked at being able to clear the C-spine of children after blunt trauma in the pre-hospital setting. So far, it looks like the mechanism and the history won't be very important factors. Fourth, CTA was just not enough to rule out an esophageal injury in penetrating neck traumas. And then fifth, listening to podcasts while you're driving is just as educational as listening when you're just sitting there. So feel free to put on your podcasts on your drive to work. Now then, you've earned them. We offer them CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org, where if you want the best of learning that is spaced repetition, please sign up for our newsletter and listen to the podcast, and then that will be the best way to learn truly. Our goal here is to provide the best patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.